we're in the second sermon in a series that we have entitled Sacred. Um, um, it's, it's a series where we are looking back through thousands of years of church history. And we've seen some things that transcended fads. They have stood the test of time because they're anchored in the Scripture. Things the church has considered sacred for generations. Last week, we looked at the spiritual discipline of confession. It's an act of surrender that is a vital part of our beginnings and our relationship with Christ, but confession is also a natural part or a necessary part of our ongoing purity and humility and our spiritual growth in Christ as we mature through the years. But many of us that grew up in evangelical circles, confession was the prayer we prayed when we said the sinner's prayer and came to faith, but we never really thought about confession as an ongoing spiritual discipline. And we addressed that issue last week to keep us coming back to the foot of the cross in humility, seeking God for purity. Today I want us to look at probably the most ancient symbol of religion in all the world, the altar. We started the year talking a little bit about the altar, and I think it's fitting that we talk about it again. Almost every major world religion has an ancient connection with some type of an altar. In Christianity, the altar has been a meeting place between God and man since the beginning. While its function may have changed and it's evolving over the last thousands of years from the time Noah made his first sacrifice on an altar until how we refer to the altar call today in our churches or we have a sacred space we've set aside as an altar area, the concept of the altar has changed but the use of a place to meet with God has profound implications on all of our lives. Right up front, let me say, this sermon is not a sermon to argue for or against the physical wooden benches we call altars being in front of the church. And you say, why would you say that? Because I know a lot of people who mistakenly believe a church that has the physical wooden furniture in the front of their building is a praying church moving in the right direction. And some of those same people believe that those churches without altars are liberal and prayerless and moving in the completely wrong direction as if the furniture makes someone a praying church. I've been in a whole lot of churches that had wooden benches called altars in the front of their churches that rarely ever used them. Because the decor in your sanctuary is no more a guarantee that you're a praying church than that treadmill you use as a clothes hanger is a guarantee that you're going to exercise. People have made idols out of altars in the same way the Old Testament Israel made an idol out of the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites made the mistake when they tried to carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle thinking it was a good luck charm. They thought the reason they kept winning all these battles was because that little piece of furniture followed them everywhere they went only to find themselves defeated and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from them. The Ark is not what brought them victory. The presence of God is what brought them victory. The Ark was merely a box overlaid with gold until God decided to allow His presence to dwell there. The people of God misplaced their affection and made an idol out of a piece of furniture and neglected the presence of God. The presence of God didn't come upon the ark because the ark was special. It became special when the presence of God decided to come upon it. And there is a big difference and if you get those two things mixed up, you're going to make an idol out of furniture. 
when I grew up, most churches that my my grandparents and my mom and the places that I attended, they had literal wooden benches up front. And some of them were very ornate and polished and elaborate, but they were made out of wood. And that's where people would come to kneel at the altar call or response time after the service or at an invitation. Many people would come towards the altar area and make a confession or profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so whether it was somebody coming to faith in Christ for the first time, they responded to an altar, or whether it was that old prayer warrior, that intercessor, the, that 80-year-old lady, she came and knelt at the same spot at the altar every time. A lot of times before church, a lot of times after church, and many times in response to the sermon. I am used to seeing that in my life. My life has been transformed, kneeling over an old wooden altar like that. And I've seen them go from ornate, polished, very beautiful pieces of wood to being in some outdoor camp meeting environments where two stumps have a two-by-four nailed on the top of them so people can have a place to come kneel and pray. My life has been transformed formed by those places, those designated areas. Like, we don't have the benches here to kneel, but we have a designated area up front. We could fit another row of chairs in here if we wanted to, but we have chosen to leave a space for people to have an encounter with God. The altar has been such a foundational component of my life that we don't even have the, the furniture here, but you'll often hear me ask you to come to the altar. And if you don't, you're wondering, what am I? And it's more of an altar area, but it's connected back to the scripture because the altar was synonymous with a place where people met with God. The furniture is replaceable. The irreplaceable element is the encounter with God. That's what we cannot miss. And so you see even through history, you hear people talk about the altar call or the invitation. And if you if you didn't grow up in a, a setting like I did, maybe you're not a comfortable or accustomed to an altar call or an invitation. It's fairly recent. There's no real biblical evidence of an altar call being given in Scripture. But if you, if you see uh, the, the recent evidence, let me just kind of give you the involvement of an altar call. George Whitfield was probably the most notable preacher that was identified with the Great Awakening here in the U.S., around England and, and in the U.S. And he didn't want to speculate by inviting people to the front as to who had truly converted and who hadn't. So he said the Holy Spirit works confirmation and life change. And, and, uh, and he said time will tell if it, they really, really did respond. But at the turn of the 19th century, as it came upon us, popular American Methodist preachers, many who learned their traditions from the Anglicans, came to the United States and they began to preach itinerantly and hold revivals. And, and one of the things in the Anglican background that many of the Methodists were influenced by was a, a communion table at the front where there was an altar associated with the communion table. And people in the Anglican tradition were often invited to receive communion. They could kneel at the altar and they could receive encouragement and prayer from the priest in that setting. Well, the Methodist preachers took that step a little further and they began to preach the gospel and they invited people not just for prayer and encouragement, they invited people that were quote-unquote under conviction, being drawn into relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit to come to the altar and profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it became a phenomenon in the early days as people were called to make a decision. In the 1830s though, the altar call skyrocketed to prominence in the Protestant church with the ministry of Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a revival 
revivalist whose theological belief told him that, that the will of a man had a powerful role in his conversion process, that God gave that man the ability to choose. And if man had the ability to choose whether or not to follow Christ, then, then that there ought to be a place set aside that man could respond and flesh out that decision. And so Charles Finney preached all over the world and he was known for giving invitations or altar calls for people to come forward and make their decisions. Famous evangelists of more recent history, D.L. Moody from the 1900s and Billy Graham in our own generation have been known for following in that tradition with the altar call or the invitation. And ultimately the altar call, the invitation or the response is rooted all the way back to the first altar where Noah set aside a place to meet with God. The altar word is mentioned 433 times in the scripture. The first one is this story of Noah in Genesis 8. Verse 18 says, so Noah came out, he came out of the ark together with his sons and with his wife and his son's wives and all the animals and the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds and everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. This is the first altar we see in the Scripture, and this is an altar of worship, where Noah is so full of gratitude. The judgment of God had been turned against the human race because it was not what He created it to be. They had a choice, and they chose wrongly, and sin was so rampant that God judged the world with the flood, but graciously spared the human race through Noah. He spared Noah's family. And Noah was so moved with gratitude for the gracious mercy of God that the moment he stepped off the ark, he constructed an altar to meet with God. It was a place of encounter. And what I want you to know is that God responded to Noah's offering. He responded to Noah's altar. He responded to Noah by meeting him there. And I've trekked this all the way through Scripture. When people are willing to set aside a time and a place to meet with God, God will meet them there. He will confirm His Word there. He He will meet you face to face. For Noah, he responded by placing a rainbow in the sky and say, Noah, I'm making a covenant with you that I'll never flood the earth again like I did this time and that rainbow will forever be a sign of a covenant that I'm sealing with you. Noah was full of gratitude, knelt at an altar, and God met him there. It was a place of encounter. And since that time, as you read through the Scriptures, the patriarchs and spiritual fathers of the Bible have built altars to have encounters with God. And Sometimes they have had these theophanies or epiphanies or encounters with God and they have built an altar as a memorial to commemorate the experience they have had with God. And I want us to look at some of those in Abraham's life. But before we jump to Abraham, think about those that followed Abraham. Isaac was his son the great promised child. And he learned from his father Abraham the importance of the altar. In Genesis 26, when Isaac is aware that God said, the covenant I made with your father, Isaac, I'm going to make it with you as well. And he was so moved that he built an altar at Beersheba and had an encounter with God. 
Even Jacob, the son of Isaac, who stole his brother's blessing, Esau's blessing. He was known as the deceiver. God got a hold of Jacob and so transformed his life that Jacob built an altar in that encounter. And it was in that encounter that God changed his name from the deceiver to the prince of God. What happened on the outside was an external show of the deep transformation that had gone on on the inside of his life. And in order to commemorate that experience, Jacob built an altar that symbolized I had an encounter with God here that day. And I can tell you on November the 18th of 1990 in a little country church in eastern Arkansas, I stumbled in drunk and this deceiver made his way to the altar. And I met God face to face. He turned my life inside out. I still carry the same name as I did then, but I am not the same person as I was then because I gave him my sin and he gave me his righteousness and I've been sober going on 22 years now because of the power of an encounter with God at an altar. Moses is one who made the altar the centerpiece of Hebrew worship. It was a place of spiritual renewal in Moses' leadership. It was a place of prayer and praise and sacrifice and commitment. They commemorated great victories at the altar and important passages were commemorated. Like even in Joshua's life when they came across the Jordan River into the promised land, the first thing they did was take the stones out of the bed of the river and build an altar as a commemoration of an encounter with God. Gideon defied the priest of Baal by tearing down the pagan altars. But but the night before he did that daring event, he built his own private altar of prayer in Judges 6.24 and named it the altar of peace. And there Gideon had an encounter with God where he received the boldness to fulfill the call of God on his life. Samuel, one of the greatest leaders of all of the Old Testament, had an encounter with God in an altar. He was a prophet, a priest, and a judge. But he was also a man of the altar. 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all of those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he had built an altar there to the Lord. Every one of those cities, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, are other cities where other patriarchs of the faith had had an encounter with God and built an altar. So it says because Ramah was his hometown, where he met God, he built an altar there as a place of encounter with God. Each of the places were places where men had met God face to face. Probably one of the most powerful and emotionally charged encounters with God in all of the Bible was the encounter that David had. David was a man who trusted God, followed God with his whole heart when he was a boy, but as he became a king, resources began to grow. Influence began to grow. And where David had trusted God to, defy, to fight Goliath with a slingshot and a stone, now that he's king and he's into image management and he's into his reputation, before he goes to battle, he has to count his army. His advisors say, don't, don't do that. You've never counted your army before. You've always trusted God, but David counted his army anyway. And the judgment of God came upon Israel, and it was a severe judgment. Many, many people died in that context of Scripture. David then, because of what he saw happening, ran to an altar. 
He ran to the threshing floor of a farmer named Ornan. And he built an altar on the threshing floor. And he later bought that piece of land from Ornan because the the encounter he had with God not only changed David's heart, it changed the course of an entire nation. And that very spot where David bought that Ornan's threshing floor and built an altar became the building place for Solomon's temple. The place where the glory of God later filled the temple so the priest could not even stand to perform their duty. Let me remind you this. Every miracle has a genealogy of prayer. The reason there was a temple built where the presence of God came is because there was a king who turned his heart back to God in that very spot and had an encounter that touched the heart of a nation. I am an answer to prayer today because my grandma, my grandfather, and my mother met God in an altar every morning. And I am a result of their answered prayer. It says to me, that if you'll meet God in an altar today and every day from now on there are miracles, the potential that is available through prayer in this room by people who are willing to have an encounter with God is unlimited beyond the the Old Testament you see several things of the New Testament in relation to the altar but before I I jump out of the Old Testament I I have to mention Abraham in, in, in Genesis 12, Abraham made a, a covenant with God, or God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham was so moved that he built an altar. And it was the altar, it's important that you know this, the altar was built between two mountains. One was named Mount Ebal, which means barren. The other was Mount Gerizim, which means fruitful. And Abraham built an altar between the mountain of barrenness and the mountain of fruitfulness, and he met with God there. Because God had given him a promise And he was journeying in between those two mountains and had not seen that promise fulfilled and he built an altar to meet with God. If you are somewhere stuck between the promise of God and His destiny for your life, if you find yourself somewhere stuck between the promise of God and the fruit of that promise bearing in your life, if you're stuck in the in-between, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you've been to the Mount of Promise, you've been to the Mount of Fruitfulness, but, 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 but now you, you find yourself stuck between fruitfulness and barrenness, you need to build an altar and have an encounter with God and let God remind you of the promise that He put on the inside of you. If you journey through Abraham's life, you'll find multiple altars that he built along the way. One altar that he built was between the city of Bethel and the city of Ai. Bethel is the house of God. Ai is the place of ruin. And sometimes, even Abraham, patriarchs of the faith, we we look back on them and think they're perfect. Friend, Abraham was far from perfect. And even Abraham sometimes wavered between what was right and what was wrong. And that is fleshed out in the Old Testament. And when we find ourselves wavering between Bethel and Ai, we got one foot in the house of God and one foot in the house of ruin. It's time then that we listen to the voice of the Spirit begin to work in our lives. Because when we're caught halfway between the house of God and the house of ruin, the Scripture says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. It is time to build an altar of repentance It is time to build an altar of commitment and come back to God because the only way you can stay out of AI is to continue to ride that altar and walk with God. Encounter Him every day. It was an altar of commitment, an altar of repentance where Abraham drew the line in the sand. No more wandering, no more half-truths, no more lies. But of all the altars that Abraham built, the one that had to be the hardest to build was the one he built at Moriah. 
It's the one where he took his son, the one he had waited on for almost a hundred years. Isaac was the promised child, and now God is asking for the promised child as an offering. And as they journeyed up to the mountain, there's debate over how old Isaac was, but he was old enough to have some concept of what was going on. Because on the way up to Moriah, Isaac looked at his father and he said, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, Genesis twenty-two fourteen, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh will provide in this moment. You know the story. Abraham laid Isaac. He bound him there. I can't imagine the emotion and the exchange that was going on between that father and son at that moment. As he raised his knife, the angel stopped him. There was a ram caught in the bulls, the, the bulrushes and the thicket. And, and, and you have to understand, it was never Isaac that God was after in the first place. For this altar may have been an altar of contradiction for Abraham. How in the world could the son of God's covenant, the son of promise, be turned into the sacrifice of my life? How could that happen? It's contradiction. But to God, this was an altar of testing. Because God did not want Isaac. He ultimately wanted Abraham. And when we're going to be tested too throughout our life, God is going to take us to altars of sacrifice. He is going to take us to altars of surrender. He is going to take us to altars of covenant and altars of promise. But you know this, He cares enough about you that in a lot of your wondering, somewhere along the way, He is going to lead you to an altar of testing. He is going to put His finger on the Isaacs that are in your life. It may not be a child. It may be a hobby. It may be a career. It may be a ministry. It may be your financial prowess. I don't know. But somewhere along the way to help you grow. To make sure that the created thing does not take the throne of your heart where the Creator belongs. Because the gift of God had replaced God Himself on the throne of Isaiah's heart. And our, our, our Abraham... of I just lost my thought, man. Isaac had replaced God on the throne of Abraham's heart and this was a root canal for God to take him to that altar of testing and unseat him it was it was it was taking the idol out of Abraham's life and taking the rightful place on the throne of his heart God is going to lead you to those places of testing something died in Abraham that day and something dies in every altar altar because the altar is the place where we bury our idols we bury our pride we bury our self-interest and we fully surrender at the altar of testing in the new testament one of the most profound references to an altar in all of the new testament there are two i'm going to point to you before i close the first is by the apostle paul in romans 12 and 1 and maybe you never ever thought about it as a reference to the altar but listen Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. 
the Apostle Paul is using the Old Testament imagery of a sacrificial altar. And instead of a bull or a goat being pulled up on that altar, that's a dead offering. He is challenging us to lay our lives on that same altar as a living sacrifice. Make your life the currency. Give Him your time, your talent, and your treasure. There is an old hymn that we used to sing, Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? And that is the question the Apostle Paul is challenging us in Romans 12.1 using the imagery of the altar of sacrifice he says the true and proper or reasonable and logical worship is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice in the Old Testament the holiest day of the year was the day of atonement that was the day can you imagine if you lived in the Old Testament sins were not forgiven in the Old Testament They were deferred, just rolled back. And so the people would get their best offering of their grain and of their animals and they would bring it to the priest. And then the priest would carry those offerings behind a veil that separated the common man from the presence of God. And the priest would go into the holy place. And only one man, one day a year, could go in there. And he would take the offerings and take them to the mercy seat. And if God received those offerings, he would come out and make an announcement. And the people would celebrate because the payment for their sin had been deferred for one more year. It's just like they're, they're just waiting on something. And they were waiting on something. They were waiting on the time when the real offering would lay his life on the ultimate offering the ultimate offering would lay his life on the ultimate altar and the bible says when jesus did that that the temple veil was torn from the top to the bottom giving every man access into the presence of god and what had been deferred year after year according to the book of jude was done once and for all through the sacrifice of jesus christ and according to the book of hebrews chapter 13 we now have a living altar in christ jesus that when i come to god i can go into his presence with boldness expecting to encounter him face to face because I have a living altar that the writer of Hebrews says is better than the altar the Old Testament saints went to because I have access through Christ and his work on the cross of Calvary our church altar area is more than a convenient place to kneel it's very related to the altars of the Hebrew people Like Noah, we turn in gratitude to the altar. Or Abraham, we mark the high points of our experience and our spiritual journey at encounters we've had with God. Some people in the altar area of this church, others in the altars of other churches, but people have been saved here. Their marriages have been restored here. Prayer of the elders were offered and people's bodies were healed here. We were filled with the Holy Spirit here, called into ministry here, accepted Christ here. There are things we we were married and set our vows in an altar. We dedicated our children at an altar. We said our last goodbyes to loved ones at a funeral at an altar. There are so many monumental things. Like Moses, the altar for uh, many of us is a place of covenant. Or like Joshua, a visible reminder of all the things that God has done for us. It's a place of sacrifice. A place of repentance. A place of covenant. A place of promise. But ultimately, as I've said repetitively, it is a place to encounter God. In the same way the Old Testament patriarchs built altars as they journeyed, You can make an altar wherever you are. That seat that you sit in at your desk, you can turn it around tomorrow morning 
and make an altar just like Noah did right there. When I was in high school, I'd, some of us fasted on our lunch period. And I would go into the back of the library. I'd act like I was getting a book and I would open a book and I would sit on the floor in the corner of the library in a public school where nobody would see me. I wasn't trying to draw attention to myself and I would make an altar. You can make an altar anywhere. My grandma's altar was the little tight space between her bed and her wall and she would kneel there. There is a mark. She's still alive and has the same carpet that had been in her house for two decades. And there are two spots in her house where her legs have worn holes in that carpet. It's my grandma's altar. My mom, in all the craziness of life, the only place she could get some peace is to go into the restroom, shut the door, and kneel over the toilet. The toilet, very humble place, became her altar. I heard her through the sheetrock in my house when I was away from God call my name more than once at that altar. You can make an altar wherever you are. And if you'll have an encounter with God, let me tell you this. One touch, one touch of God can undo years of sin and bondage and labor. One touch of God can accomplish more in a moment with one touch than you can undo in a lifetime. Just one touch. As I was asking the Lord to help me close this service today, I really felt with all my heart that there was somebody in this room that needed to meet Him. I mean, meet with Him at an altar. I, I mean, you, you just, you need to, it's almost like you need to, me to hurry up and get out of the way so you can, so you can run and meet Him here. You need that touch, that one touch. Maybe for your marriage, maybe for your physical body, maybe, maybe for a, a business. I don't, I don't know, but there's a desperation in your heart. Maybe it's just been so long since you felt His embrace and you don't want to go another day of dry spiritual walk. You want to, you want it fresh. You want your tear ducts open. You want God's embrace in your life. You need to meet Him at an altar. And this morning, this place, is a sacred place. You can come and kneel. You can come and stand. You can come get on your face. The communion elements are here. If you want to take communion, they're around the building. My objective this morning, though, is I just sensed a burden in my heart that somebody came into this room today and needed an encounter with God. I believe today, like He met Noah, He'll meet you. I'm not even going to ask for the prayer team to come and help pray for two reasons. Number one, some of the prayer team may need an encounter with God this morning. And number two, you don't need a mediator. This is between you and God. You need God to come down and touch you today. And if you're desperate for a touch of God, before you walk out of this place, I pray that you will make an altar and allow Him to embrace you, to touch you, to transform you, to change you. One touch can change it all. Father, in just a moment, we're going to stand and these altars will be open. I pray men and women who need to be here, who are being drawn here by the Spirit of God, that they would meet you here and that they would be changed forever. They would mark this day that they met 
God in a profound way, whether it's the it's 20 years of a spiritual journey or the first day. That this is the day Jesus Christ marked their life. Meet sickness here, God. Meet discouragement here, God. Meet lack here, God. Meet trouble here, God. Let this be an altar of miracles. Embrace us with your presence. Would you stand with me all over this place today? And if you feel the draw of the Holy Spirit to an altar, you need to meet God. You need an encounter with God this morning. Would you just step out from where you are and make your way to an altar? Kneel, find, stand, do whatever. You just sense the draw of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to formally dismiss the service today. Pastor Bear is going to keep the environment worshipful. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over this entire congregation today. But I just want people that feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit to have a... I just need an encounter with God today. My family needs an encounter. Maybe as a couple, you need an encounter. Your finances need an encounter. This is a sacred place to meet with God. Now, Lord, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction. And give them peace. Meet us at this altar. In Jesus' name.